Thank you. You're sweet. Uh, my name is Keith. If you're new here, and um, welcome. Good to see you. Uh, I've had the joy of being pastor here for 25 years, and uh, it's, it's been a, a blessing of my life. Thank you. <clears throat> and uh, more importantly, uh, a round of applause for my wife that I've also been married to for 25 years. Uh, yes, she's, she's the best. And uh, we, ha uh, her name's Kimmy. She was up here singing uh, with the praise team this morning. And um, she's actually been at this church even longer than I have. But we're blessed to have four kids. We have two boys and two girls. Uh, you'll see them serving in various places around the church. And uh, Kurt is 20 uh, in college. Kevin is 16, almost 17. And uh, he's in 10th grade. And Cameron is 15. And she is in 8th grade. And uh, Cassie is 12, and she is in sixth grade. So that explains the hairline. You know that. <laughs> yes. So we're very, very, very blessed. And I <clears throat> was thinking about just how good God has been. And, and Kim and I think about this. We were gone for uh, a week, uh, a couple weeks back, and uh, took some time together, which was amazing. And uh, just thinking about God's goodness and early in our marriage, prayer just to, to the Lord would was that he would plant us in a church where our kids could grow up and um, in one church and uh, God has so far been kind and gracious to us to answer that this is the only church I've ever served at and the only church my kids have ever known and um, that's a that's a distinct blessing from the from the Lord a kindness from from the Lord um, well, this morning we are continuing in our walk through 1 Thessalonians. So if you have a copy of God's Word or a device, if you would turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're coming to the conclusion of Paul's letter to a very uh, beloved church in Thessalonica that he writes two letters to. We're at the end of the first one, 1 Thessalonians 5. And would you follow along as I read? Verse 16 through 22. Let's give attention to God's word. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you uh, for the promise that it is powerful, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make it so in our hearts today. Uh, help us, Lord, to receive the word that you have for each one of us today, and we trust your promise where you tell us that you have good things for those who come to you and who believe that you are and that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. So uh, pray for the weakness um, in my own heart and my own capacity to deliver the message that you have, but we thank you that uh, in my weakness that you uh, have promised to be strong. So would you do that? Would you help Jesus to be clearly seen? And I know that if that happens, that uh, we will all be blessed. So we pray this together in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you are list makers. Anybody want to even like admit that you're a list maker? You, you have like the notes on your phone app and you just like have hundreds of notes for various things and uh, I am married to a list maker. I'm not a list maker myself. I just uh, never 
I, lists are depressing to me. I never seem to like get through them. Um, but my wife is a list maker and she does amazing things with lists and usually they're in the form of little post-it notes. So throughout our house, if you walk through our house, you might like see a post-it note just in a random place throughout the house and uh, it'll have this perfect, you'll know it's from Kimmy because it will have this perfect kindergarten font with like hearts over the eyes and everything. Like it's just this perfect handwriting and it'll be sweet and everything but um, it, that, that list that she leaves on the post-it note, it, it, it is not there just in a vacuum. It's there pointing back to a previous conversation. So that list is there as a reminder because the person who wrote said post-it note knows that person who's reading said post-it note has already forgotten the conversation that happened between those two parties. So the post-it note is there as a reminder, uh, as a happy little reminder. And um, so Paul is like my wife in that he has this post-it note kind of at the end of this letter to the Thessalonians of eight things that he wants the Thessalonians to not forget about the conversation that he has just had in the first five chapters, and he wants to remind them of some things. So basically bullet points, and but they don't exist in a vacuum. If we read them just in a vacuum, they're going to be confusing to us. And uh, so what I want to do is think about what has Paul been telling the Thessalonians through this letter so that this list uh, that Paul gives us will make sense. Well, Paul's constant refrain through these first five chapters has basically been this. Christ has died for our sins. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. Christ has died for our sins. Christ has risen. And Christ is coming again. These central truths of the gospel should be shaping the church, and they should be shaping the members of the church, the people in the church. And this morning, I'd like us to see together how the gospel shapes two things, our worldview and our relationship with God. The gospel shapes our worldview, and the gospel shapes our relationship with God. Well, maybe this morning you'd or like me, and a lot of times you see this post-it note and you're scratching your head to remember the conversation that preceded the post-it note. Or um, this morning, perhaps you don't remember what Paul has said in the first five chapters. Or maybe you're just coming in and you haven't been with us in our previous study through First Thessalonians. So what I want to do is take a few minutes to just walk through some of the highlights that Paul has um, noted in the first five chapters. So let me begin by attempting to Recap 1 Thessalonians so that this list of eight things on Paul's post-it note will make more sense to us. Well, Paul began his letter to the Thessalonians, telling them how thankful to God he was for them. He said he mentioned them constantly in prayer, and he remembered their works of faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ. He recalled that God had chosen them by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. He commended them as examples and how they received the word of God in the midst of their affliction, and yet they received the word of God with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul reported to them that their repentance and how they turned from idols to Jesus Christ had become known far and wide. In chapter 2, Paul reminds them that he and his companions had suffered shameful treatment in Philippi, and yet they had declared the gospel with boldness, not to please man, but to please God. 
And Paul describes his relationship with them as a mother caring for her child, wanting to nourish them with the gospel. He also compares his ministry to them as a father, exhorting and encouraging his children to walk in a manner worthy of God's call. He thanks God that they received the word of God as the word of God and not the word of men. And as the word of God worked in their hearts, the resulting changes had led to some amount of outward suffering for the Thessalonians. Paul said he wanted to come and see them, but he was hindered by Satan. And instead, he sent Timothy to exhort and to encourage them so that they would not be overcome in their affliction. Well, Timothy returned with such an encouraging report of their faith that Paul and his companions were comforted in the midst of their own trials. And so Paul, in response, sent a blessing to them that they would love one another even as Paul loved them, and that God would establish their hearts in holiness in preparation for the return of Jesus. In chapter 4, Paul begins his exhortation for the Thessalonians to live in a way that was pleasing to the Lord, and that this pursuit of personal holiness should increase as the day of the Lord draws near. He said this sanctification should include things like self-control and purity and brotherly love and hard work. He encouraged them also to live quiet lives and to mind their own affairs. Paul then turns to in, begin informing them about the coming of the Lord. There had been some confusion and questions, and he wanted them to know that the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection secured the hope of resurrection for all of those who had fallen asleep in Jesus. And when Jesus returns, the bodies of those who have died in Jesus would be resurrected, and all those who were alive in Jesus at that time would be caught up to meet him in the air and that they would be with Jesus forever. As to when Jesus was going to return, the day and the time, Paul told them that nobody knows the day or the hour, but he did tell them that it would come suddenly like a thief in the night. And Paul encouraged them to live as children of the day, of the light, with sobriety and with faith, with hope, with love, in the light of the gospel building each other up and encouraging one another. And then Paul turns and asks the Thessalonians to honor and to respect those who labor among them in the Lord. And he encourages them to be at peace among themselves, to help the weak, to be patient with all, and never repay evil for evil, but to do good to everyone. Well, this brings us to our list of eight. Eight items on Paul's post-it note and his list of imperatives Say this. Number one, rejoice always. Number two, pray without ceasing. Number three, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Number four, do not quench the Spirit. Number five, do not despise prophecies. Six, test everything. Seven, hold fast to that which is good. And eight, abstain from every form of evil. Well, you will recall that in the previous passage that Paul was dealing with with our horizontal, interpersonal relationships. And now Paul turns to a more vertical and more personal spiritual relationship that we have with God. As we pursue life together as a community of faith, we must also take care to examine the state of our own hearts. And as Paul comes to the end of this letter to the Thessalonians, he gives these eight imperatives. All eight are given in the present tense and call for continuous ongoing action. They're commands, they're not suggestions. Notice the modifier that Paul has in this list of virtues. He says, not just be joyful, but rejoice always. 
He doesn't say, make sure you pray. He says, pray without ceasing. He doesn't say, be thankful. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. And then to underscore the point that these characteristics should mark every follower of Jesus, he says this, this is indeed the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So in the time that we have this morning, I'd like to talk about how the gospel should be shaping the life of the Christ follower. Marks of a gospel-shaped life. And the first way the gospel shapes and marks our life is the gospel shapes our worldview, the way that we see the world when we wake up in the morning, when we watch the news, and we're going through our, our news feed. How do we see the world around us? And Paul says, first way that the gospel should be shaping our worldview is that the gospel should be shaping our affections. And he says, rejoice always. Let's consider together this first command on Paul's list of marks of a gospel-shaped life. Paul's command to rejoice always. Well, if you are familiar with Paul's writings, his other letters, you'll know that joy is a very common theme throughout Paul's letters. And many times he writes about joy even in the midst of his own circumstance of pain and suffering and that's always weird for us North Americans in Philippians he's even contemplating his own execution and he's still writing about joy and he's encouraging his readers to be joyful in Christ in this letter of first Thessalonians that we're considering in these weeks together listen to some of the things that Paul encourages us to rejoice in he says at the beginning of the letter rejoice in the gospel as good news Rejoice that Jesus is alive. Rejoice that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Rejoice that Jesus is coming back for us. Rejoice in the fruit of discipleship. Rejoice in the community of faith. Rejoice in a God who ordains only good things for us. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul tells us that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And as such, it's not a product of what happens around us, but this joy comes only from what the Spirit does in us. Well, how does the gospel shape our affections? One commentator puts it this way, if the knowledge of the love of God does not make us glad, what does it do for us? If it does not make a difference to our spirits and our temper, do we really know it? Christ compares its influence to that of new wine. It is nothing if not exhilarating. If it does not make our faces shine, it's because we have not tasted it. I do not overlook any more than St. Paul did the causes for sorrow. But the causes for sorrow are transient. They are like dark clouds which overshadow the sky for a time and then pass away. While the cause of joy, the redeeming love of God in Christ Jesus, is permanent. It is like the unchanging blue behind the clouds, ever-present, ever-radiant, overarching, and encompassing all our passing woes. Let us remember it and see it through the darkest clouds, and it will not be impossible for us to rejoice evermore." Friends, has the gospel shaped our affections in a joy-producing way? We're 
talking this morning, first of all, about how the gospel shapes the way we see the world, that the gospel should be shaping our affections to produce joy. But secondly, Paul says, we should, be pray, we should pray without ceasing. And I want to think about that in terms of how the gospel shapes our identity. How the gospel shapes our identity. Pray without ceasing. Well, what does Paul mean by pray without ceasing? Well, let's look first of all in the context. At the beginning of Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So I think Paul does have in mind when he says pray without ceasing that there is a sense in which we come to God repeatedly and often during the day following Paul's example. But I think we all realize Paul's not saying don't do anything but pray 24-7. I do think what Paul is saying is whatever we're doing throughout the day, be prayerful about it. Be prayerful as we're doing those things. We are all in our own sinful nature, and I think we, we, we know this. We're independent, and we don't seek prayer as a disposition of our heart naturally. And this is where we understand how the gospel shapes our identity to want to seek God. Prayer can be understood as a declaration of dependence upon God. Why else would we pray? We pray because we need something that we can't do ourselves or we can't accomplish ourselves. We are dependent creatures. And so to pray without ceasing can be understood as living a life that never ceases to depend upon God. To pray without ceasing can be understood to live a life that never, seeks to, uh, that never stops seeking after God. To pray without ceasing, we're constantly calling out, Oh God, help me, throughout the day. With such continual prayer, we can experience joy. Without such continual prayer, God's commands such as be joyful are going to seem burdensome to us. With much prayer can be much rejoicing. With little prayer can be sometimes little rejoicing in God. Listen to how Paul speaks about this combination of rejoicing and prayerful thanksgiving in Philippians chapter 4. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God connection in Paul's mind between the command to rejoice and the command to pray without ceasing, particularly with thanksgiving, which we'll talk about in a minute. But even so, if we're honest with ourselves, this admonition to pray in this way seems to us overwhelming. It seems impossible, like Paul is saying, breathe underwater, grow gills, fly. It, it just seems unnatural and impossible to us and, and burdensome. And perhaps that should stir our hearts today in at least two ways. One, that the call to pray without ceasing is an invitation from the creator of the universe for us to have relationship, to have a conversation with him. And then secondly, how seldomly we take God up on his invitation to spend time with him in prayer. A very encouraging and beneficial book by Paul E. Miller called A Praying Life Paul says this, In fact, prayer is so hard that most of us simply do not pray unless an illness or in a public setting, such as saying grace at a meal, demands it. 
Prayerlessness is rooted in a core unbelief that can shape our lives, even as Christians, because prayerlessness, because of prayerlessness, our lives are often marked by fear, anxiety, joylessness, and spiritual lethargy. Uh, I told you about my kids right now. Um, my oldest is off driving. He's doing fine, but I've got two that I'm still kind of in that learning stage of teaching them to drive. And uh, if you have never taught a, a teenager to drive and your prayer life does need stimulation, this is a very beneficial activity for your, for your prayer life and also for your right foot to be pressing on, on the invisible brake pedal on the passenger side of the car. Uh, but they're, they're doing fine so far, thank God. But one of the things I've teaching them is as they're going down the road to look through the windshield, don't look at the windshield, and such is a good illustration of us when we're praying. So often we're frustrated in our praying because we're focused on the windshield. We're focused on praying itself, and we're not focused on the destination of prayer, which is time with God. So the goal for prayer is not more prayer, but the goal is more God. Well, let's think more about this gospel-shaped life, the marks of a gospel-shaped Life First, that the gospel should be shaping our worldview. How we see and interpret the world around us should be shaped by the gospel, by the reality of Jesus' life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. Those facts should be shaping the way we see the world. They should shape our affections to give us this joyful outlook on life all the time. The gospel should be shaping our identity who we see ourselves as and be producing this prayerful dependence as we walk through life. But third, I want us to consider how the gospel should be shaping our value system, that we should be thankful in all circumstances. Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, I think you'll agree with me. There are certain seasons of life where being thankful or feeling thankful is a very natural disposition. When our family is healthy and happy, our hearts can be easily filled with thanksgiving. Even then, sometimes our thanksgiving is not necessarily a Godward thanksgiving. You'll hear this oftentimes during the holiday season. It's Thanksgiving season. We're so thankful, but a lot of people are not talking about, well, who are you thankful to? They're just thankful. Um, so sometimes our thankfulness can ring hollow, but yet in those happy seasons of life, it is a disposition that comes to us rather easily. But recall here that Paul charges us to be thankful in all the circumstances of life, not just the happy and healthy and prosperous times. Recall that Paul writes several times in the short letter about the Thessalonians' current situation is one of conflict, disappointment, and sorrow none of which, in Paul's mind, are an excuse for unthankful hearts because the gospel should be shaping our values. But notice this. Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. He does not say give thanks for all circumstances, and there's a huge difference in that one word. This perspective can make a big difference. Friends, we're never commanded to give thanks for cancer or give thanks for death, or give thanks for conflict, or give thanks for injustice. No, but we can be thankful in those hard circumstances if we understand God's providence. God's providence. Listen to John Calvin 
on his commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. He says this, For what is fitter or more suitable for pacifying us than when we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us. As we better understand God's providence, we come to see the world from God's perspective. We often talk about the sovereignty of God, and in that word sovereignty, we're referring to God's unlimited and inexhaustible power. His power. But when we talk about providence, we are talking about how God uses His power. That there's a purpose behind God's use of His sovereignty, a purpose behind His power. That is the providence of God. And that purpose extends from the movement of galaxies unseen all the way to tiny subatomic particles. And that includes the seemingly trivial details of our daily lives. Friends, as followers of Christ, we should not expect to escape sorrow if the Christ we follow did not escape sorrow. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. No matter how dark the night may seem, we can be thankful because we trust the providence of a God who says he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. The night will not last forever, and joy will come in the morning. Haven't we all known a dear saint of God who, despite a bitter and painful circumstance or diagnosis, persevered with unexplainable joy and thanksgiving? Didn't their faith challenge you and encourage you to love Christ and to know Christ more? Friends, let us aspire to imitate their faith. Let us aspire to know their Jesus. May God make us a thankful people, for this is the will of God in Christ for us. And may the gospel shape our values so that we can be indeed a more thankful people. Well, we're seeing this morning ways that the gospel marks our lives. It first marks us by shaping the way that we see the world to rejoice always with gospel-shaped affections, to pray without ceasing with gospel-shaped identity, and to give thanks in all circumstances with gospel-shaped values. Can I ask you this morning, do these gospel-shaped virtues of joyfulness, prayerfulness, and thankfulness, do they mark our lives? Has our worldview indeed been shaped by the gospel? If not, or if you need some encouragement like me, let's read on and let's see how the Lord may help us. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians again. Chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says this, Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. 
I want us to see this morning that the gospel not only shapes how we see the world, but the gospel also shapes our relationship with God. Our relationship with God. Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. I want us to think about how this means the gospel should be shaping our understanding. The gospel shapes our understanding. In verse 19, Paul turns from three positive virtues, and he turns to three negative or more negative vices. In the first three, he focused on the complete or the comprehensive way and manner in which each was to be performed, namely rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. But now Paul turns to focus on the subject itself being discussed. As to the Spirit, do not quench him. As to prophecy, do not despise it. As to evil, abstain from every form. And I want us to keep remembering how Paul has previously written about these things, right? This list does not exist in a vacuum. We're intended to be reading it into the context of 1 Thessalonians, into the context of all of Paul's writing, and indeed into the context of, of all of Scripture. But I do want us to remember in this letter that Paul had previously written how the gospel came to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul wants them to see that gospel should be shaping how they think. How, and now they have the Holy Spirit, and consequently they can understand spiritual truth. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. He says this, the natural person, that is the person that's not a Christian, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually discerned. We must have the Spirit of God within us shaping how we understand spiritual truth. Paul's command to not quench the Spirit can be understood as do not stifle the Spirit's work, like pouring water on a fire to extinguish it. We can quench the Spirit's work. What does Paul have in mind here? Certainly, Paul's three previous admonitions, joy, prayer, and thanksgiving, are in view here. Namely, Paul is saying we cannot accomplish those virtues without the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, The gospel came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is at work in the communication of the Word of God, in the preaching of the Word of God, but also in the hearing of the Word of God, the one who listens. The Holy Spirit is involved in the communication of the Word of God. Paul goes on to say, One way that the Spirit is quenched is by despising prophecy despising prophecy verse 20 he says do not despise prophecy test all things hold fast what is good and here i want us to think about how the gospel shapes our discernment the gospel shapes our discernment well we're not entirely sure here if paul is talking about when he says prophecy if he's talking about the formal preaching and teaching of the word of god or if he's also including the spiritual gift of speaking a word of prophecy. There's nothing necessarily in 1 Thessalonians to tell us that he might be talking about the spiritual gift. However, the point, I think, is clear in either case. Paul says, do not despise prophecy, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. So what's the point? I think Paul's point is an encouragement for us to exercise spiritual discernment. The gospel 
should be shaping our discernment. So Christian, before making a decision, before listening to advice, before uh, applying a sermon that you've heard, before engaging in entertainment, we must ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? Those things that the Bible says are true and good must be embraced. Those things that the Bible says are evil, we must reject. This discernment cannot be undertaken without the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Do not quench the Spirit of God and do not despise the Word of God. Friends, how we need to recover a gospel-shaped discernment today. Let us recommit ourselves to loving God's Word and not despising it, but treasuring it and learning what it commands and what it condemns. Let us measure everything and test everything against what God has said. But the truth is that many times we don't know what God has said, so we are incapable of, me- of testing and measuring and being uh, discerning about what God says because we just don't know. So let us recommit ourselves to knowing what God has said. Let us not be simply second-handers, like shopping at Goodwill, which is great and that's fine, but you're getting something that has come from someone else. When it comes to God's word, we are not called to be second-handers. We are called to go to the source ourselves. Don't live off simply what other people have heard from God or known about God. We are called to go ourselves to the throne of grace with confidence, approach the word of God with the same confidence and hunger to know him through his word so that as we do, then we can be more discerning. Well, the final item on Paul's list is verse 22 where he says, abstain from every form of evil. And here I want us to think about how the gospel shapes our sanctification. Sanctification, it's a big word, and it simply means becoming more like Jesus, pursuing holiness, a progressive holiness, the pursuit of being more like Jesus. Well, he says abstain from every form of evil. What are some of those forms of evil that Paul had previously written about? Well, he certainly had written about sexual immorality, among other things. In chapter 4, verse 3, recall that Paul says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So notice how the gospel, once again, the news that Jesus lived, that he died for our sins, and that he was resurrected, and that he's coming again, Those realities should be shaping our sanctification. We do not pursue holiness 
in order to be accepted by God. It's the other way around. Gospel-shaped sanctification says, because we are already accepted by God, we pursue sanctification. The gospel makes all the difference. And yet it is still a command. Abstain from every form of evil. Friends, has your life been shaped by the gospel? Does your life show the marks of the gospel? Has the gospel shaped your world view? Do you have gospel-shaped affections producing a joyful outlook? Do you have gospel-shaped identity producing a prayerful dependence? Do you have gospel-shaped values producing a thankful heart? And secondly, has the gospel shaped your relationship with God? Do you have gospel-shaped understanding? Are you walking in the Spirit of God? Do you have gospel-shaped discernment? Are you treasuring the Word of God? Do you have gospel-shaped sanctification? Are you pursuing holiness? Again, this is not an exhaustive list of every way that the gospel should be shaping our lives. But I do think that this is Paul's post-it note, as it were, as we're walking out the door. He wants us to remember the conversation that he's been having with us through this letter about the influence that the gospel should be having in our lives. And as the gospel influences and shapes our individual lives, then it will also influence the culture of our homes, and it will also influence the culture of our church as we gather together, as we walk through this life. I want to invite you this morning, church, to seek with me after God that He would grant us a gospel-shaped life, a gospel-shaped home, a gospel-shaped Church. I want to remind us of the text that Dr. Chapman read for us, Titus 3, 4 through 7, as such a great depiction of this gospel. And maybe you walked in this morning and you're not sure about the gospel. You're not sure about grace. You're not sure about what it means to follow Jesus. I hope that Today, you have been encouraged by what you've heard. I hope that this text uh, that I'm about to read will speak to you about the gospel. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray together, church. God, I thank you so much for Jesus, and I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the, the, the good news that he died in our place. I thank you that he accomplished perfect righteousness 
and extends the offer of salvation and forgiveness of sin in exchange for his righteousness to all who will call upon him. Thank you that we can be justified not because of works that we have done in righteousness, but because of your mercy accomplished by Jesus by dying in our place and applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, would you come in power and apply this washing of renewal to hearts Would you speak life, Holy Spirit, as only you can? As we call upon your name, would you save? Thank you for the powerful gospel. Thank you for the hope that it can shape our lives as we run after you individually and as families and as a church. Lord, would you help us run together to Jesus? And would you bring a gospel culture that represents this Jesus to this place and to every heart? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.